has everything he needs, pointers, and knows how to work this thing. You know how to change the whole back and forth, right? Yeah, I mean, you can just toggle this. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And there's, there's no fancy no. Uh, audio visual. Yeah. And you've got a pointer here if you need it. Cool, right? Okay, excellent. No worries. I'm going to introduce you and we'll get started. So this morning we have a somewhat unusual um, topic, but in fact I think one that's really seminal to many of the areas of research and clinical medicine that are pursued here in the sense that the speaker, Ian Tattersall, is a world expert on human evolution and in particular the application of both theoretical and more practical information with regard to evolution generally as it might be applied to human beings. And I think one of the most important aspects of this is that by understanding better the circumstances that in which we as a species evolved and the, and the choices in a sense that were made by natural selection that put us at the top of the, at least in terms of brain power, presumably heap on the earth may have dragged other phenotypes along with it in terms of the central nervous system particularly, but obviously physical uh, issues as well. And I think a great deal can be learned from thinking about human biology, medicine, and some of the particularly psychiatric disturbances perhaps from an evolutionary point of view. So I thought it would be good for us to hear from an expert in this area, and we've certainly got one here today. Dr. Tattersall is the Curator Emeritus of Anthropology at the Museum of Natural History in New York. For those of you who don't know where that is, that's the museum with the dinosaurs in it, and it's got big whales in it, and Teddy Roosevelt is uh, out facing east on the uh, Central Park West entrance. It's really a remarkable place. Dr. Tattersall got his baccalaureate degree at University of Cambridge in England and his PhD at uh, Yale University has published I think three or four hundred papers in this area and twenty or thirty books and um, I welcome him and hope you will do the same. Dr. Tattersall, please. Well, thank you very much for that, uh, that very nice introduction, and uh, good morning, um, everybody. I, I feel very flattered to have uh, been asked to, to, to talk to you in this uh, distinguished um, institution, but I feel like a bit of an, an interloper um, among uh, clinicians. Uh, I've just been asked to fill out some papers about uh, uh, what you'll all be able to do uh, after you've listened to this talk. and. Um, I had a bit of trouble there. I, I got to, well, walk and chew gum, and then I kind of ran out of ideas. But um, in any event, um, I'm happy to be able to talk to you this morning about um, some of the work uh, that, that I do and some of the things that I've been thinking about. And if you have more specific kind of um, questions related to your own uh, research interests, clinical or otherwise, maybe we can address these um, a little bit uh, later on in the, in the, in the question uh, period. Now at the end, 
Now, what I want to do today is really to talk to you about um, how humans became the extraordinary creatures that they are. And the implicit question here is whether we humans are simply an extrapolation of the evolutionary trends that preceded us, or whether there is something yet truly new about Homo sapiens. Now, of course, we Homo sapiens are distinguished from all other creatures by a host of attributes, uh, including our upright posture. And each of these attributes has its own story. But the thing that makes us feel so different from everything else is the, the, the unique way in which we process information in our brains. And that's what I'd like to focus on in this talk today. Now, alone among living creatures, we human beings sort of disassemble our surroundings into a huge vocabulary of uh, mental symbols. And then we can recombine these symbols to produce alternative notions of the world around us. And this means that in a very real sense, we human beings live a large part of our lives in the worlds that we construct in our heads rather than in the world that uh, nature objectively uh, presents to us. And so we are, in essence, symbolic creatures. And this shows in every aspect uh, of our lives. Other species react more or less uh, directly and with greater or lesser sophistication to the stimuli that impinge on them from the outside environment. But our symbolic capacity allows us human beings to envision alternatives and to ask ourselves questions like, what if? And this makes us, of course, as I've said, truly unusual among living organisms. And it immediately raises the question of how we got to be this way and, and why. Now, this question, I think, is particularly apposite because there appears to be a qualitative gulf between our kind of cognition and that of any other creature. We are not doing what other creatures do only somewhat better. We're dealing with information in an entirely new kind of a way. Yet, of course, at some remove, there can be no doubt that we're descended from a non-symbolic um, ancestor, from uh, basically a run-of-the-mill primate. And I think it's important for us, uh, not least for our view of ourselves, to understand how that, tradition, that uh, transition may have occurred. Now, uh, let's get the slides going. Here is a uh, very provisional tree, a genealogical tree of the human family, the hominidae. And you can see that's, that it's extremely bushy with the numerous branchings. And that's what actually the pattern you'd expect to see in any successful uh, mammalian family. But perhaps most significantly of all, this tree shows just how unusual it is for our species to be the only hominid in the world. Typically, as you can see, several uh, hominid species have existed at any one time. <clears throat> and this fact is certainly telling us something very significant um, about ourselves. But before I, I get to that, I'm, I'd like to pose a series of more basic questions, which include, well, with how many of our extinct relatives, if any, did we share our symbolic uh, capacities? Did we acquire any of our remarkable mental features gradually over the eons with the tireless working of natural selection on our biological precursors? Or was there actually a specifiable moment at which one of those precursors could be said to have become fully human. That's what's better, thank you. Uh, to have become fully human with all of the associated uh, uh, cognitive equipment that, that goes along with that. So in other terms, are we homo sapiens 
simply a more sophisticated extrapolation of uh, what was there before, of the evolutionary trends that preceded us, or is there something truly new about us? Well, obviously, to answer questions like this, we've got to look both at our fossil record and at the archaeological record of the behaviors that our forebears you see up there on the screen left behind. But first of all, before we do this, I think we need to establish a starting point. And the best and perhaps the only way of uh, doing this is to look at the cognitive style of our closest living relatives, uh, the apes. Now, a lot of work has been done on ape cognition, and in weighing all of this work, it's always necessary to bear in mind that we are necessarily looking from the outside here. For all the observations that we can make, we never really know the quality of an ape's subjective experience of the world. We can know what it's like to be an ape because we necessarily filter everything through our own particular human sensibilities. But from observing living apes uh, interact with us and, from, uh, and, and interact with each other and with the world around them, we can get a pretty good idea of how complex their mental lives are. And many, many observations now suggest that those lives are very complex indeed. But although hardly a week passes in which one or another ape is not um, reported to do something that we once thought that we only did, um, the cognitive gap between us and them, I think, still looms. We are symbolic, while for all their considerable intuitive intelligence, they are not. And I think the cognitive scientist Danny Povinelli has summarized the situation very nicely. He says, chimpanzees rely strictly on observable features of others to forge their social concept, and this would mean that chimpanzees don't realize that there's more to others than their movements, facial expressions, and habits of behavior. They don't understand that other beings are repositories of private and internal experience. And I think this is a fairly good and a fairly, uh, fairly good um, summary of the situation based on very extensive um, observations and familiarities, particularly with chimpanzees. Now, both we and chimpanzees have changed an awful lot since we first shared a common ancestor at around seven million years ago. But it's still plausible to use characterizations like this as guides to visualizing the cognitive starting point from which our remote ancestors set out. And in fact, Povinelli has done it himself. In his words, as you can see up there, these were, our, our ancestors were intelligent thinking creatures who deftly attended to and learned about the regularities that unfolded in the world around them. But they did not reason about unobservable things. They had no ideas of, of mind, no notion of causation. And uh, as far as one can tell, this seems to be about as close as you can get to the characterizing the early hominids uh, as uh, cognitive entities. It's reasonable to suppose that this is, um, this is a fairly uh, accurate way of looking at them. And it gives us some kind of an anchor point as we begin to consider the behavioral innovations with which the hominid story is punctuated. But first of all, of course, we need to know just who those early hominids were. Well, the earliest evidence we have of creatures who are exclusively our ancestors and uh, not the ancestors of, of apes as well comes from various sites in Africa that date from between about seven and four million years ago. And uh, here's the earliest of them, Sahelanthropus chadensis, from uh, central West Africa. And here 
is the recently ballyhooed Ardipithecus from northern Ethiopia. Well, there's no time for me to say very much about these and other pretenders to early hominid status here, except that they make a really oddly assorted bunch. But the main thing they have in common is that all of them have been claimed to have been upright bipeds, at least when they were moving around on the ground. And their main importance, in, in terms of my theme today, is to remind us that from the very beginning, hominid history has been pretty standard for a successful primate family. That is to say, it has been a history of diversity and evolutionary experimentation, and not, as we used to be taught, a linear grind from primitiveness to perfection. There are apparently, as you can see up there, many different ways to be a hominid, and it's clear even from the mere handful of fossils we have from very early times at the bottom of the slide there, that the hominid tree was bushy from the very start. And the critically important lesson, I think, to derive from this is that, as I've already said, uh, Homo sapiens is the exception rather than the rule in being the only hominid uh, on Earth, which I think certainly says a lot more about the special nature of our species in particular than about what it means to be a hominid um, in general. And it also means, of course, that we're going to be, or we're very likely to be mistaken if we use ourselves too closely as models uh, for trying to understand even some of our closest extinct relatives. We can't just look on them as sort of junior league versions of ourselves. Okay, back to the story. The first really well-documented hominid known is Australopithecus afarensis. And this uh, species includes in its ranks such stars as Lucy, who's seen here with her discoverer uh, Don Johansson in the garden of the American ambassador to Ethiopia shortly after she was found in 1974. Uh, Lucy's the one lying down. Um, now, Lucy consists of much of a 3.2 million year old skeleton that was discovered at this place, Hadar, in Ethiopia, and a host of other specimens of the same species are known from various sites in Eastern Africa. Now, there's no doubt at all that Lucy and her kind were upright walkers when they were moving around on the ground, and indeed, it was probably hominids like these who made the famous three and a half million year old uh, trackways from Lytoli um, in Tanzania. Nonetheless, the rather small-bodied early primates or early hominids uh, clearly didn't walk upright in exactly the way that we do. And as uh, descendants of tree-living ancestors, they retained numerous features, especially of the upper body skeleton, that would have, allow have allowed them to uh, <coughs> move around with facility in the trees even as they moved further beyond the forest than any hominids had ever done before. Now this kind of have it both ways adaptation made the early hominids uh, neither as uh, uh, agile in the trees as modern apes are nor as efficient on the ground as we are but it served them very well remaining essentially unaltered for several million years even as new hominid species came and went. Well, why hominids became upright walkers in the first place is a complicated story that hasn't been resolved. But what, what I think is most important to bear in mind is that once you've stood up all of the potential benefits and liabilities of, uh, of uh, bipedals, uh, bipedality are yours. And this is the case whether those particular advantages come in terms of locomotor efficiency or of freeing the hands for other activities than locomotion or of cooling the brain and body, or any of the other things that have been suggested as the key 
uh, factor that favored upright locomotion. Basically, it was standing up in the first place that was the important thing. Because in evolution, form has to precede function. A feature has to be there before you can use it. And our ancestors almost certainly stood upright on the ground simply because they were already accustomed to holding their trunks upright in the trees. But bipedality aside, there's very little to indicate that these early hominids were functionally human in other respects. They still had ape-like cranial proportions with large projecting faces uh, hafted onto uh, tiny brain cases as we see here with um, an Ostrophilcus afarensis in the middle, a modern human on the left, and uh, a chimpanzee on the right. And you can see the, the, the enormous resemblances in basic skull structure between the early hominid and, uh, and, and the chimpanzee there. And this is why there's a, m a major tendency nowadays among paleoanthropologists to refer to these ancient hominids as bipedal apes. And there's certainly no evidence to suggest that the earliest of our ancestors differed substantially from today's apes in their cognitive functions. Well, in any event, to cut a very long story short, in the period before about two million years ago, numerous different creatures of this general kind flourished widely in Africa as part of the ongoing hominid experiment. And ultimately, the earliest members of our own genus Homo emerged from this process as witness a welter of fragmentary fossils that are all claimed to be early, early Homo. Uh, <clears throat> here are the type materials of uh, Homo habilis from Olduvai Gorge in Tanzania, which is the longest established of these so-called early Homo species. And um, <clears throat> it's about 1.8 million years old although uh, the, the earliest of these claimed early homo species, uh, specimens actually go back to about two and a half million years, which is coincidentally, probably, exactly when we find the uh, uh, earliest known stone tools, though there are now intriguing intimations that actually uh, uh, stones were used for butchery rather before this. Here's some examples of some very early stone tools, which are small fist-sized rock cores with small sharp flakes bashed off them. And crude as they might appear, these um, tools were very, very highly effective. Experimental archaeologists have butchered entire elephants using little bit of flaky, uh, little, little flakes uh, like these. And once more, without any question, making and using such tools also mark a major cognitive advance among the hominids who made them because it takes considerable insight, well beyond what any ape has been able to achieve, even with intensive coaching, to strike one cobble with another one at exactly the right angle that's necessary to detach a sharp flake like this. So the first stone tool makers were spontaneously indulging in a complex behavior that seems to have been beyond the capacity of any living ape, and it's clear that they had taken a cognitive leap of some kind but frustratingly, it's just not possible from the evidence that we have to know what this implies for the, the rest of their behavioral repertoire, let alone for the way in which they, they subjectively experience the world. Interestingly, though, it's looking very likely that the first stone tools were not made by some new and improved kind of hominid, but, were, but by bipedal apes. 
In other words, the first stone tool makers were physically a fairly archaic uh, body build, and they had brains that weren't a lot, if any, bigger than uh, the brains uh, that you might expect to find in an ape of the same body size. They were indeed much like the, uh, the, the um, hominids you see in this painting by Jay Maternis, who were caught in the act of uh, exploiting a formerly inaccessible uh, <coughs> source of uh, proteins and fats. And if the early stone tool makers were indeed physically archaic like this, we have here a good example of a theme that we find throughout the hominid record, which is that behavioral innovations do not tend to be associated with new kinds of hominids. And if you think about it a bit, this is actually uh, makes considerable sense because a new technology has to be invented by an individual and that individual cannot differ too much from his or her own uh, parents or offspring. So innovations, even the most radical ones, have to arise within species because frankly there's no other place that they can do so. And this particular innovation of stone tool making, uh, stone tool making was perhaps the most fateful innovation in all of hominid history. But then we have to wait a further half million years before we find another radically new kind of hominid, a creature who we know had a body size essentially comparable to, uh, to our own, a body size and build essentially comparable uh, to our own. Now, often classified as Homo ergaster, this new form is best represented by the miraculously complete 1.6 million year old Turkana boy skeleton from northern Kenya that we see here. Now, these are the remains of a youngster who was five feet three inches tall uh, when he died at the age of eight years uh, and might have come close to six feet if he'd uh, actually uh, survived uh, to maturity. And this skeleton tells us that the hominids who lived by Lake Turkana 1.6 million years ago were long-limbed and slender, as you can see here, totally unlike the, uh, the early bipedal apes. Uh, and um, these, these early hominids had clearly become endurance striders. They were built for life out in the hot, open, arid savanna, far away from the shelter of the forest, to which uh, the, uh, the, the early hominids had previously been tied. Now this new body form made them unprecedentedly mobile because it seems that once physical emancipation from the forest edges had actually been achieved, ancient humans immediately developed a kind of a wanderlust. Indeed, uh, new dates and fossils suggest that humans had not only exited Africa, but had reached all the way to Eastern Asia, hard on the heels of achieving essentially modern body form. Uh, this skull from the site of Dumanisi in the uh, Caucasus is about 1.8 million years old and it's associated with body bones that are said to show basically modern uh, features. On the other hand, this hominid and its fellows had very small brains and primitive tools so their newfound mobility was apparently not associated with uh, greater intelligence or with improved uh, technological resources. So, in the absence of good environment, uh, evidence of any kind of environmental change that might have facilitated their move, it was clearly the new body form that made the difference. Now, back in Africa, while the Turkana boy and some of his relatives did have larger brains than either the bipedal apes or the Dominici hominids, those brains were still not a lot more than half the size of our brains today. And um, Nonetheless, the uh, 
face of Homo ergaster itself was substantially reduced compared to the faces of the osteropiths, as you can see from the Tarkanoboy's skull here. And the overall skull proportions basically anticipated the future uh, more than they harked back uh, to the past. But again, for all of the physical novelties we find in Homo ergaster, we have to wait over a quarter of a million years again uh, after its first appearance before we encounter the next technological advance. And this is because the boy and his kin made stone tools that were largely indistinguishable from those that their predecessors had already been making for a million years. And it's not until about 1.5 million years ago that we begin to find significantly new kinds of stone tool in the African archaeological record. Again, we see a significant disconnect between physical, uh, physical and behavioral uh, innovation here. Now this uh, new stone tool type that you see up there on the screen is the so-called Achillean hand axe. And this is a tool that is consciously and deliberately shaped on both sides to a, a symmetrical, deliberate shape. For the first time, it seems that tool makers were making tools to a so, sort of mental template that must have been held in their minds, rather than simply going after the attribute um, of the cutting edge that was important to the early stone tool makers. So this is a revolutionary concept. It almost certainly implies yet another cognitive advance um, among the hominids that made it. Or perhaps, and not for the first time, the discovery of a cognitive potential that had lain dormant since the arrival of the new body structure. But again, we know frustratingly little about how this uh, Innovation may have reflected change in the lifestyles of toolmakers or may have echoed any potential expansion of their behavioral repertoire or any, uh, uh, any, anything affecting their, their interior lives. Still, it's clear that at this time, hominids continued to live in small mobile groups that moved consistently around a landscape that they shared with a variety of other um, hominid species. It, and, um, very instructively, I think, in the period around two million years ago, we've got fossil evidence of at least four uh, different hominid species are sort of symbolically represented in this painting by Jay Maternus, living just on the shores of Lake Turkana in uh, northern Kenya. Four different kind of hominids sharing the same landscape. Now, in the million years after the uh, Turkana boy lived, we have a scattering of fossils in Africa, though not as rich a record as we had previously. But crania like this one from Buya in uh, Eritrea, it's about a million years old, um, hint that a lot was going on during this time, and the same is also true outside the African continent. <clears throat> we find the famous Homo erectus in Western Asia, at least 1.6 million years ago, here's a good example, and hominids seem to have penetrated Europe, still with very primitive toolkits, by about uh, 1.2 million years ago, as evidenced by this fossil from Spain. And the upshot is that once humans had left Africa, new species were spawned in different parts of the world, exactly as you might expect, while hominids continued to proliferate in their home continent too. Very different picture from that linear uh, <coughs> notion that we were all taught about um, in school. But it's only about uh, at about uh, 600,000 years ago that we begin to find in Africa and in Europe evidence of the first cosmopolitan old world hominid species 
often called Homo halibagensis. This was the first hominid species to take over the world, and here's a couple of examples. Now, Homo halibagensis boasted a brain that was well within the modern size range, although it's still much smaller than the modern Homo sapiens average. And um, it's often, especially in Europe, <coughs> found in association with remarkably archaic stone tools, as we can see in the case of this 400,000-year-old Homo halibagensis, uh, surrounded by some of the uh, stone tools, very crude stone tools that it's associated with. But, so much for the tools, but it is in the time range of this species about 400,000 years ago that we find the first evidence of uh, simple structures um, like the one recreated here uh, that are associated with hearths in which uh, controlled fires had burned and there's a little depression right inside the uh, the uh, supposed, the presumed entrance to the uh, to, 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 to this hut here, this little hearth, this little scooptar depression is a hearth with blackened bones and uh, blackened stones in it where a controlled fire had burned. Now, the, the first hearths actually are found at an Israeli site that's almost 800,000 years old. But it's really only within the tenure of uh, Homo heidelbergensis that the control of fire seems to have become a major feature of human life. Um, also around 400,000 years old are the astonishingly preserved and delicately shaped wooden throwing spears found at um, uh, Schöningen in Germany, one of them seen with its, uh, its, its, its uh, finder, Hartmut Thiema. Now these javelin-like artifacts suggest that the hunting techniques of this period may actually have been much more sophisticated overall than we'd guessed purely from the lithic record. So this reminds us that really at all stages, especially where we're just um, relying on the preserved stone tools, we are seeing only a tiny slice of life as it was at the time. And once again, we have to... <coughs> well, now let me just say one other thing about Homo halibagensis. Um, there was a lot going on. We got the first shelters, we got the regular control of fire, we've got these javelins and so on, but we find nothing in the way of symbolic artifacts that are associated uh, with this, um, with, uh, this species, Homo halibagensis. All we have are purely functional um, items, nothing with any kind of symbolic uh, implications. And once again, we have to wait for some time, maybe until about 300,000 to 200,000 years ago to find another significant innovation in stone tool making. Now this innovation was a so-called prepared core stone tool uh, whereby a stone, let's have a look at one, where, uh, whereby a, 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 a stone core was carefully shaped on both sides until a single blow could detach a flake that required little modification into a finished tool. And uh, you see the, uh, an example here, a beautiful point that has been detached with a completely uh, <coughs> continuous um, cutting edge around its surface from the, uh, the bigger core in the back. And again, you've got a, a, tr a tremendous uh, leap, it seems, into, in the insight of the toolmaker. This is a much more abstract, this is a much more uh, complex and um, multi-faced uh, st uh, stone toolmaking uh, technique than uh, even was made by the, uh, the, the, the hand axe makers. Now, once more, it remains uncertain where the prepared core tool was uh, invented and by whom. But what is quite undeniable is that the best documented and quite 
probably the, the most accomplished pr practitioners of this uh, new way of tool making were the Neanderthals, Homo neanderthalensis. Now, these were the best known members of an indigenous European and Western Asian hominid group that had its origins at some time over about half a million years ago. And here we see, uh, and <coughs> oops, here we see a map showing the, uh, the large swath of the Earth's surface that the Neanderthals, um, uh, that the Neanderthals uh, occupied. Oh yeah, here, here's, here's uh, the, the slide. Here's a cranium from Spain uh, dating to about 600 to 500,000 years ago uh, that uh, is almost a Neanderthal, uh, but not quite, but certainly um, demonstrate that the Neanderthal lineage had been, had been uh, established in Europe uh, by that time. Now the Neanderthals were creatures with uh, hominids with brains as large as ours. But those brains, as you can see from the slide here, with the Neanderthal on the left and modern Homo sapiens on the right, these brains were housed in very differently shaped skulls from ours, with long, low brain cases and faces that protruded in the midline and, and that swept back uh, towards the sides. And the reconstruction on the left of this side here of a complete Neanderthal skeleton shows that there were radically different body proportions uh, between the Neanderthals and uh, modern humans too. Um, Neanderthal on the left, modern human on the right, and particularly striking are the differences in the, the, the form of the thorax and the pelvic area. Very distinctive hominids uh, compared to, to us. Now, the Neanderthals emerged as a distinctive uh, species around 200,000 years ago. And as you can see here, they crafted stone tools really beautifully. These are gorgeous, uh, these are gorgeous things. But they made those stone tools relatively monotonously in the sense that there was a sameness to these tools all over that vast expanse of time and space that the uh, Neanderthals inhabited. Now, saying this is not to denigrate the Neanderthals in any way. And clearly, they were very, very sophisticated exploiters of their environments. And possibly, the, at the time, they were the most complex beings that had ever existed. But it's hard to avoid the impression that they interacted with the world around them in a way very differently uh, from the way that we do. Even the Neanderthal's propensity to bury their dead, as imaginatively portrayed in this rendition of the famous flower burial from the site of uh, Shanidar in Iraq, it's very it's, 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 it's very um, difficult to, to argue that, that such things uh, actually go beyond in a sort of an inchoate expression of empathy. And culturally and cognitively, all of this is very, very important because the Neanderthal record stands in very stark contrast to the spirit of innovation and inventiveness that suffused the productions of the modern humans, uh, informally known as Cro-Magnons, who entered the European heartland of the Neanderthals about 40,000 years ago. These were the people who entirely displaced the European Neanderthals in a remarkably short time, and we'll just, uh, I'll return to them in a moment. But right now I want to point out that abrupt replacement, such as of the Neanderthals by the, uh, the, the incoming Cro-Magnons in Europe, was not the pattern that we see everywhere. A little way to the west of Shandidar in Israel, at a site in Israel, we find early evidence for anatomically modern people like this one dating back to almost 100,000 years ago. Yet in the same region, we find Neanderthal remains such as this one here at a mere 45,000 years ago. 
So Homo neanderthalensis and Homo sapiens thus clearly shared the Levantine landscape in some way for 50,000 uh, 50, years or even longer. Now, how they shared this, uh, how, how, how they, 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 they achieved this partitioning is, is, is still uncertain. Although very interestingly, throughout the period of coexistence there, the two species shared a virtually identical stoneworking technology. That modern human that you just saw made tools identical, had an identical toolkit to the one manufactured by uh, uh, the, the Neanderthals. And functionally, at least, we have very little reason to suspect that there was any cognitive difference between the two species in this period, between Homo neanderthalensis and Homo sapiens. But it's surely significant, I think, that the last recorded Neanderthal occurrence in this region came very soon after the first appearance in the Levant of a stoneworking technology that uh, generally resembled uh, the one that was brought with them by the Cro-Magnons, those modern uh, Homo sapiens who invaded Europe at about uh, 40,000 years ago. And here's one of those uh, Cro-Magnons, actually uh, from the actual site of Cro-Magnon itself. And these were the people who, in not much more than 10 millennia, entirely eliminated the Neanderthals from their vast homeland. Now, whether this eviction was uh, achieved by direct conflict or by indirect economic competition or by some combination of the two, uh, we really don't know for sure. But what we do know is that the invading Cro-Magnons brought with them abundant evidence of the entire cognitive panoply that uh, characterizes humans worldwide today. <clears throat> Not only did these uh, new people make tools in a dazzling variety out of new materials such as bone and antler, a typical bone point on the top right of this, of this slide. But from the very beginning, they, made, they left behind abundant evidence that they were fully symbolic. And the symbolic record of the Cro-Magnons is absolutely extraordinary. Um, well over 30,000 years, they'd already begun to, uh, to, to, to leave extraordinary art on the walls of caves. Here's an image from the cave of Chauvet in France, almost 34,000 years old, and there's a movie uh, by Werner Herzog uh, uh, just uh, about to, to, um, uh, to, uh, to, to open uh, next week um, in, in New York. Do try to see it if you can. Amazing art on the walls of caves, 34,000 years old. At around the same time, bone flutes with complex sound capabilities uh, such as the ones you see here, announce the uh, advent of music. Uh, markings on plaques, uh, like this one here, um, clearly represent systems of notation, perhaps even lunar calendars. Burials were often complex and sometimes crammed with grave goods, as we see here. And some of the most beautifully observed and crafted sculptures ever made date from this time. Here is the tiny vogelhaired horse pendant from Germany. It's carved from mammoth ivory, and it's one of the <coughs> earliest art objects that we know at about 34,000 years old. And you can see this, 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 this exquisite piece is, is no simple rendition of the uh, chunky horses that roamed the Ice Age uh, European steppes. Instead, it's a quintessentially uh, symbolic piece. It's a sort of abstraction of the graceful essence of the horse. It's just the most wonderful little thing. Um, at the same time, 
technology became much more complex in Europe, and it started on a course of constant change and, and innovation, which may in itself be the most important innovation of all, the innovation of the spirit of innovation. Uh, by 26,000 years ago and more, bone needles like these announced the uh, advent of a couture. I hope we don't know, but it's certainly, certainly deliberate ta uh, tailoring. And equally early on, um, ceramic technology was invented 26,000 years ago. Uh, and clay figurines like these were, were baked in simple but remarkably effective kilns. Now, this list of Cro-Magnon achievements could sort of go on and on, but I think you've got the point already. Um, these people were possessed of a sensibility that was totally unprecedented in all of the hominid history that I've briefly reviewed. Now, they were us, basically. Now, having said this, I should emphasize right away that this new capacity did not emerge in Europe. Instead, it was brought there with them by the Cro-Magnons, whose new qualities had been acquired somewhere else. And probably these new qualities had originated in Africa, because it is in that continent that we find not only the first modern human fossils at around 200 to 160,000 years ago, but also, a little bit later, the earliest hints of modern behaviors. Among the material evidence for the early workings of symbolic minds is this 75,000-year-old plaque uh, of uh, <coughs> incised, uh, geometrically incised uh, plaque of ochre that was found at the site of uh, Blombos Cave on the southern coast of Africa. This is perhaps the earliest plausibly symbolic object that we yet know, although suggestive fragments uh, also from Blombos actually may date from somewhat earlier. Um, and there are plenty of other indications from uh, this area that something more complex was going on in Africa in this general period than was happening in Europe at the same time. So a significant change was, uh, behavioral change, was in the, uh, at the very least in the air at Blombos and similar African sites in the period following about 100,000 years ago. And this change was certainly fully realized by Cro-Magnon times. Now previously, both technological and anatomical innovation in human evolution had been highly sporadic. Most of the time, nothing was happening. Hominids had clearly always been adaptable to changing circumstances, but they tended to meet these changes, these environmental challenges, by adapting old technologies to new uses, rather than by inventing new technologies. Um, but with the emergence of behaviorally modern Homo sapiens, a totally unprecedented entity was on the scene, and one with a voracious appetite uh, for change. And to understand the qualities of this new phenomenon, it's important to remember that cognitively modern Homo sapiens is clearly not simply an extrapolation of what we saw before. It's something completely different. So what had happened? to cause this unprecedented change. Well, this issue of what happened was the cause of the deepest disagreement that ever fissured the relationship between Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace, who were the co-inventors, of course, of the notion of evolution by natural selection. Darwin, who we see here, firmly believed that natural selection was the unambiguous explanation of uh, human consciousness, had driven it into existence. Well, Wallace simply couldn't see how this could be so, and Wallace was a great selectionist. 
Well, this is a very profound uh, disagreement. But it seems to me that, that both men were, were, were partly right. It's more of a matter of uh, perspective. They were right in different ways. Because as Darwin knew, our peculiar consciousness is the product of our brains, which are indisputably the product of a very, very long and accretionary evolutionary uh, history stretching back 400 million years and beyond. And nothing that occurred subsequently could have happened in the absence of uh, that historical legacy. There was the absolutely indispensable foundation. But what evidently bothered this man, Alfred Russell Wallace, was that the properties of the modern human brain were unpredicted by what went before. Now back in the uh, uh, mid to late 19th century, Wallace, uh, without any uh, alternative explanations to hand, favored supernatural invention, intervention to uh, explain the radical cognitive shift that he, that he so clearly perceived. But today this change looks much more to be uh, plausibly an emergent one. Simply the, uh, the revolutionary but essentially passive result of a chance coincidence of acquisitions. And this is, very, uh, that this is a very typical thing that happened in evolution. For clearly, while classical natural selection plays an essential role in the evolutionary process, natural selection is not a creative force. It has to act on variations that come into existence spontaneously. Nothing new arises for anything. And natural selection obviously can only work on variations that are presented to it. As a result of which, I think we must conclude that the brain of the immediate ancestor of modern humans had evolved to a point where only a very small neural change was sufficient to create a structure with an entirely new cognitive potential. But even this is probably not the whole story because recall, the earliest humans who looked just like us looked, uh, behaved, as far as we can tell, pretty much like Neanderthals. Cast your minds back to those specimens from the Levant. So again, we have to ask what happened. Well, plausibly, the unique human cognitive potential was born in the radical biological organization that gave rise to uh, anatomically modern homo sapiens um, some 200,000 years ago. We, uh, we, we almost sprang out of nowhere. Neanderthals have very close relatives in the fossil record. We don't know any very close relatives to, uh, to, uh, to, to uh, homo sapiens in the fossil record. And this is very plausibly because, um, in, in fact, uh, the uh, radical reorganization of our skeletal structure probably um, was... Uh, was, was related to a, a, a short-term short um, genetic event. And if this is the case, this biological potential uh, for uh, symbolic reasoning that the new form had must have lain fallow until its expression was released by what was necessarily a cultural stimulus. The biology was there, probably. So you're looking for a cultural stimulus as to why it was expressed. So what might that stimulus have been? Well, although I, I really know nothing about the technicalities of the matter, I'm going to suggest that the invention of language fits the bill perfectly here. Because language is the ultimate symbolic activity, and for us it's virtually synonymous with, uh, with thought. Like thought, language involves forming and manipulating uh, symbols 
in the mind, and our capacity for symbolic reasoning is almost inconceivable in its absence. Imagination and creativity are part of the same thing because only once we've created mental symbols can we combine them in new ways and ask those what-if questions that I mentioned at the very beginning of this talk. Once more, if language was a very late acquisition, as I am suggesting, it also makes it easier to explain how come the first linguistic hominids already possessed the peripheral uh, vocal adaptations needed to express it. Because the peculiar form of the uh, modern human vocal tract that allows articulate speech had obviously been in place ever since the uh, origin of Homo sapiens as the distinctive entity that it is long before, having originally been, um, been acquired in a totally non-linguistic non um, context. And in a non-symbolic one as well, because to judge from the archaeological record um, associated with the earliest Homo sapiens fossils, nothing much symbolic was going on. And the highly derived human uh, vocal tract had, in other words, been acquired not as an adaptation for speech, but as an exaptation, as a novelty that was acquired in a context that was unrelated to the later context in which it was, uh, 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 it was co-opted and what it made possible. And in evolutionary terms, this is a totally unexceptional event. It's happening, it's happening all the time. Finally, unlike other putative drivers of symbolic consciousness or symbolic thought processes, language is an externalized attribute. And uh, it's very highly likely to spread rapidly within a population that's biologically enabled for it. And this remains true even if the most important function of language is actually as a conduit to, to interior thought. We like to think of language as a, uh, as a means of communication, but actually um, it has other purposes as well. So it seems above all to have been symbolic thought, the ability to intellectually form alternative worlds that made Homo sapiens an insuperable competitor at some time in the period following about 100,000 uh, years ago. I think intuitive, non-symbolic, non-declarative reasoning of the old primate kind, the kind that the, the, uh, the, the Neanderthals uh, presumably had in sophisticated form, this kind of reasoning can take you a long way. And I think we can look, up, look upon the Neanderthals as the ultimate example of what it can do. But there's little doubt that it is symbolic thought that above all distinguishes us from them, as from every other organism, uh, organism as far as we know, this ever existed. So the origin of the unique human capacity was a very recent human happening. And it was an emergent happening, rather than a predictable extrapolation of earlier trends that had been driven into existence by natural selection. And much as paleoanthropologists have liked to look upon our evolution as a sort of a linear process, as a sort of a gradual progression from primitive, primitiveness to uh, perfection, I think this conceptual holdover from the past really needs to be rethought. Instead, as we see once again in this familiar human family tree, liberally populated with many, many hominid species, the history of the hominids has been from the very beginning one of diversification and experimentation <coughs> with the hominid potential. And this, of course, is the exact same identical pattern that's governed the evolution 
of all other successful and widespread groups of organisms. So in other words, the product of, evolution, of human evolutionary history may certainly be extraordinary, but the process by which it came about is perfectly routine. And that's my message for this morning. Thank you very much. <coughs> Thank you. One is I'm laughing in a way. I'm the 2,000-year-old scientist here. But <laughs> what I did is that for thousands of years, religions declared this to be the crown of creation. Mm -hmm. And then evolution came in, and oh, we're just part of the whole. And now you're telling us again, we are special, and we are the crown of creation. And so I guess we can philosophically, we've come uh, a, a, a full circle in that regard. Um, the other thing I'd be curious about. I just respond to that first? Yeah. That, yeah, we are special, uh, but, you know, we're the people who are thinking that. I mean, <laughs> if lobsters could do it, they think they were special. I mean, every group would presumably consider itself the uh, crown of creation if uh, they were uh, in, a position, in a position to do it. So it's a matter of, it's a matter of perspective. And um, then when you look at, uh, at actually the fact that although we have rational uh, faculties, uh, we behave irrationally uh, in many, many uh, situations. And a lot of th things that we do, and particularly the things we believe are totally crazy, um, it's not uh, really, it, 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 it's very difficult to think of ourselves as being perfected creatures. Yeah, the question I'd ask you about the, the recent finding of the fact that there are Neanderthal genes uh, in our genome. Uh, did you want to comment on that? What its implications were or, uh, in terms of the interaction? Yeah, I can. Uh, the big problem is that these are huge data sets. I mean, you got, you got, Christ, uh, uh, you know, three billion, three billion points in your data set. You can't eyeball data sets like this. They had to be massaged through some very heavy algorithms uh, to get you any results out at all. And I think that many of these results are probably, will probably turn out to be somewhat algorithm uh, dependent. But I've never, I've never doubted that there might have been some um, Pleistocene hanky-panky going on. Um, but I'm surprised that these guys are, are uh, reported, uh, that the, the, the pattern is reported to have been an inflow of Neanderthal genes into the human population, but at a very low level, one to yeah, one to four percent. Four percent, I think, is under eight. One to four, one right, sir? So they, there's, a bit of, there's a bit of slop in there. Um, <coughs> uh, because, you know, I, uh, I, I would not at all be, you know, surprised that, uh, well, let me put it this way. I don't think really that any, any self-respecting Neanderthal female would have had, wanted to have much to do with, uh, with those, those awful Cro-Magnon uh, males. Um, but we don't know what the nature of that interaction was. And um, it's, it's intriguing that there is um, this signal in the nuclear DNA. It's not there at all in the mitochondrial DNA. Um, and, and so <coughs> it's, an, it's, it's, it's an odd observation. And I think we should, we should uh, be uh, you know, suspending judgment on that for a while. But no question is, 
The species are kind of leaky, uh, leaky vessels. But what you can say is that neither species had any effective um, and any, any effect on the future trajectory of the other one. Homo sapiens went on to be Homo sapiens and, and Neanderthals uh, uh, departed. Okay, where are we going? Ah. With respect to symbolic thought, people uh, don't, are communicating <coughs> less uh, uh, locally, mm -hmm. communicating through uh, uh, devices and uh, nonverbal yeah. uh, means, they communicate by pictures, and mm -hmm. more and more they're not communicating with the people with whom they're interacting, they're communicating with uh, a virtual uh, yep. world through yeah. uh, uh, pictures. This is, a, there are really two parts of this question and they're, they're, they're both very good, they're both very good questions. Let me just uh, look at the biology part of it, you know, what are we becoming? Um, we evolved, our species evolved as a species that was very thinly spread over vast landscapes living in very, very uh, low population densities in small populations that were really at the whim of environmental changes which were extreme during the ice ages uh, during which we evolved. And a lot, of uh, a lot of population stress, fragmentation, recombination, and so on. And those are exactly the, the uh, conditions under which you would expect uh, genetic novelties to become, to become fixed in, in, in populations. Uh, today, we're living in this huge, crowded, worldwide uh, population um, with unprecedented mobility of individuals going anywhere. And it's long been known that you can't frog march, uh, genetically frog march a, a large population in any particular direction. So I think that um, as far as uh, biological evolution goes, any, any, the incorporation of any meaningful changes, um, that the, there's nothing is going to happen as long as current conditions uh, remain the same. You can imagine disasters that might fragment the population and change the rules again. But right now, under current conditions, I think we've got we, we're stuck with ourselves as we are. But the second part of the question is very intriguing indeed because now we're talking about cultural evolution, and. I think the history of humankind over the last 50,000 years has been the exploration of a cognitive and cultural uh, potential that seems to be limitless, okay? We have, so much has changed in, in, our, in, our, in our technological, cultural, uh, psychological repertoires, um, and we don't know where it's gonna end. We don't know what the limits of this, 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 this strange capacity that we adventitiously have. We don't know what the limits are. We're still exploring the limits. There's no reason to think uh, that um, things won't change just as much in the future as they've changed in the, in, 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 in the past. So I think all bets are off on that one, and your, your guess is just as good as mine. Yeah. You made a comment about language in passing at the end. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
know, I, yeah, I, 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 you know, I, I, I can see why, why you, you really do want to, to, to sort, sort of separate uh, cultural phenomena from biological phenomena when you're um, analyzing them, when you're analyzing your data. But it turns out that very often the, uh, the, um, the, 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 there are very significant parallels between those two domains. Uh, the, the, the algorithms that we now use to, to um, uh, work out the, uh, the relationships among species actually were already, when, when biologi biologists started using them, were already being used by people who wanted to, uh, to, to, uh, <coughs> uh, to, 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 to know the relationships among early texts. When, when monks were copying texts and you want to know the descent of a particular text and the accuracy of a particular text, you can study the, the, the mistakes, just like uh, you can study uh, the distribution of mutations. Um, to, 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 to determine a pattern of descent. So I think it probably, I think it probably can be done. And the, what, what makes me particularly comfortable with this is that in fact, what we are seeing from this really, really interesting notion of, let's not look at the words because the words change too fast, okay? Um, by the time you're if, you're, if you're, if you're studying languages and the relationships between languages, very easy to tell what's related recently, but languages, uh, words change so fast that anal analysis of vocabularies is, is going to, uh, is gonna to, 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 to be useful maybe to uh, 5,000 years ago, maybe at the limit 10,000 years ago, but with all that change, you've lost the signal beyond that point. Um, the, the notion in this latest study is let's look at the phonemes, let's look at the sounds, which are closer to the biology because you are limited by, uh, by your vocal tract as to the sounds you can make. You're not really limited uh, by uh, cognitively to the number of words you can imagine. Um, so let's look at the phonemes and see how, you've, uh, how, how, how they work out. And what that study found was that uh, the phonemes uh, di diminishing diversity away from Africa just as the, uh, <coughs> as, uh, the uh, genetic innovations um, uh, diminish in diversity uh, away from Africa. And you put that together with the archaeological record, you put that together with the, uh, with the record of, um, of, of the, 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 the fossil record to the extent that we have it, and it's all telling us basically the same story. You don't think the ability to produce phonemes is No, I, I, yes, definitely. The, the, you no, I don't think. I don't think it's. I think the difference between the difference between cultural evolution and and um, and biological evolution is that cultural evolution can go sideways, as well as up and down, uh, um, genealogies. And this, the main difference this makes is that things happen much more, um, much faster. Um, in cultural evolution than they do in biological evolution. But the patterns, the resulting patterns are, are strikingly similar nonetheless. So yeah, I don't think this is, a, you know, this, this isn't a silver bullet uh, by, by, by all means, and I think you're right to be, to be skeptical. But it's very suggestive when it's placed in context of all the other evidence we have.
a very good observation. Um, <clears throat> first of all, uh, to the first half of the question, I think you've got to be careful to, to, um, to distinguish stereotype from, from, from symbolic. Uh, you know, bee waggle dances have a meaning, and you're not recombining that meaning uh, to, 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 produce, to produce new meanings. You just know what uh, the... So body language, yes, is, is, is a very important part of, uh, of, of communication and so on. But we actually, in our vocal communication, we use phonemes, but we, we use body language, we use gesture, we, we, we communicate in many, many uh, different ways and not simply with language. But language is, is the one part of our communication system that really seems to be related to the, our, our ability, intimately related to our ability to produce the, uh, the, the, the symbol. And then the question of the uh, Turkana boy. Very interesting. Homo sapiens is extremely uh, unusual or unique in having a hugely um, extended developmental period. Um, all, of our, uh, all of our predecessors, even the Neanderthals, grew up much, much more quickly than we do. So there is <coughs> an, uh, an extended trajectory to puberty and, and, and beyond in our species that we don't see in the Turkana boy and that we don't see in um, other, other hominids uh, either. And this is one of the things that really distinguishes us from, um, certainly from, from the apes which we can study. And apes, have a, apes don't have adolescence. I mean, apes grow up, uh, uh, chimpanzees mature by about, sexually mature by about uh, seven years old, and they're, they're there, boom. And um, there's no sort of adolescence period such as the one that we have. That, that's involved there. So the development, uh, the developmental processes are much, much slower, and they have many, many uh, sequelae. Right. So, <coughs> do you have further questions for Dr. Catterfall? We'll pick them up on the fourth floor in the conference room. You're welcome to come up. We'll stay a little bit longer. And for those of you that don't wish to or whatever, let's thank them for a great time. You got up at five o'clock. Thank you. Thank you. Let, let, let me ask you one signature oh we're good okay well it's always, it's always good to be good
welcome to, uh, to, 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 to email me. I'm not sure I can be very much, very much help, but if she'd like to do that, I'd be happy. Yeah, indeed, no problem. Thanks for coming.